Before we jump into the episode, I am proud to announce that Higher Love Wellness has released our second gummy blend. And this gummy blend is our tropical blend, which means is that we have some new flavors of gummies. We have not only the delicious watermelon that we all love already, but we've added pineapple and legendary mango. Now, these are probably the best flavors so far that we have come out with, and I absolutely love them. They absolutely taste amazing. And for those of you that haven't tried CBD gummies before, hemp tastes like hemp, right? But because of the flavors that we choose, especially pineapple and mango, it really does a good job of coupling with that sort of hempy taste that just all CBD gummies have. That's how you know there's CBD in it. It's not going to taste like, you know, some normal candy. This is even better because it's packed with CBD, but it also is absolutely delicious. I literally will find myself just like shoveling in handfuls of gummies at a time, which the recommended daily usage is two. But if you need more, you need more. I mean, you can't you can't really go wrong with more. So if you haven't tried any of our gummies yet, our gummies are THC free, so they don't get you high. You won't fail a drug test because there's absolutely no THC in them. They have loads of CBD in them, 600 milligrams per container, actually 10 per gummy, which is actually quite a bit. Our gummies are infused with the CBD as well as natural terpenes, which help give it its delicious flavor. Not only that, they're vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO. Our tropical gummies are now available at higherlovewellness.com. You can save 10% off your order with our code HOMIES. That's H-O-M-I-E-S. And that'll get you 10% off these bad boys right here. The new tropical gummy blend is now available at higherlovewellness.com. Check it out today. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 174. Today, we are talking about a really crazy disappearance that happened back in the 60s. And I don't think it's as talked about as it should be, honestly, because it's pretty No, it's wild. really not. Yeah, Just I had never heard of it. Just cases in national parks and forests is not talked about enough, I feel like. There's so many. Yeah, we've done some episodes talking about this and missing 411 that same kind of theme before and we'll definitely be getting into a little bit of that we will. today. We will. That definitely factors into this. It does. This case. It's a pretty it's a pretty crazy one. And of course, it's always hard when we're talking about children. We're talking about a child named Dennis Martin who went missing in the 60s or and has rather never... was taken, it seems like. Yeah, possible. I mean, no one knows, right? Yeah. We don't know that for That's sure. True. That's true. But yeah, chances are. Well, I think a lot of people assume when somebody's like gone missing in a national park or forest that it's like for you know these very uh, you know yeah specific something reasons related to and, animals or nature but there's but. actually some more out there sort of theories about yeah. what's actually going on in yeah. the forests and yeah. and parks so we'll get into all that with this one before we get into this case though i wanted to quickly remind everybody that kendall and i's brand higher love wellness we actually just made some pricing adjustments so we were actually able to lower our pricing on nearly all of our products by about 10 to 20% across the board, all because we have actually started taking on the packing and shipping and order fulfillment process that we were previously sort of outsourcing to somebody else. And now we have our own mm-hmm. employees that do it now yeah. for us. So we save money on that front. And, and in we're return, passing those savings on to you. Absolutely. So we're just, you know, we want to try to get you know, these products out there to as many people as we can and people that want to try it, um, you know, give them an opportunity to try it as well. Cause I mean, if you know anything about CBD and, and hemp and all that good stuff, you know, all of the potential benefits that it has, mm-hmm. uh, to your body, to your endocannabinoid system and all that good stuff, which we have tons of information on our website about all that. Mm-hmm. No need to get into that right now. Yeah. Well, YouTube doesn't love it because they don't understand. <laughs> they don't understand this stuff. And but, also, yeah, it's great because this is our new everyday pricing. These aren't going to change. It's not like a test or anything. And we will, will still have sales for additional savings on top of that. So yeah. Speaking of sales, if you're a podcast listener, you get 10% off on it. In addition, that's right. To what we just talked about with code homies. H-O-M-I-E-S. So yeah, higherlovewellness.com. Use code HOMIES for 10% off of the highest quality hemp and CBD products in the game. 
This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Modern Fertility, Vivino, Hello Tushy, Quip, and Imperfect Foods. And also before we jump into everything, I wanted to remind everybody that if you're somebody, especially someone who watches our podcast on YouTube, please, please go and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts because that really does help us out. Or Spotify too. Or follow us on Spotify too. Either one of those or on both. the audio <laughs> platforms really, really does help us out because yeah. Podcasting is still trying to figure out what to do with YouTube analytics and views. Yeah. So they don't really count any of that right now. So it helps us out greatly if you are, you know, even if you're just having it downloaded to your mm-hmm. phone each week that we really appreciate it. Also, ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are always helpful too. But let's not waste any more time. Let's get into this absolutely baffling disappearance of Dennis Martin. Dennis Lloyd Martin was born on June 20th, 1962 in Knoxville, Tennessee to parents Bill and Violet Martin. He had an older brother named Douglas and two younger siblings named Sarah and Michael. And Bill worked as an architect and had his own private practice. And he and Violet were well-respected members of the community and had a wide circle of friends. The men in the Martin family had a long-established tradition to spend Father's Day weekend camping and hiking in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which that's one of the few national parks that we haven't been to, of course. We've driven past it uh, through North Carolina before, but we've never actually visited. All the the video I've seen of it, it looks absolutely yeah, beautiful. I would love to go one day. Obviously not the same size of the mountains that we have here in Colorado, but beautiful nonetheless. Yes. I mean, they're like green and rolling almost like, mm-hmm. to us. They seem like rolling hills like yeah. they're, they're like <laughs> half the size of our mountains, but mm-hmm. still a very beautiful place to go and hang out. The tradition of going to the park dated back to the early 1900s when Martin men used the land to herd cattle. And when the park was established in 1934, the men and boys who were old enough continued to travel to the same fields and mountains every year for Father's Day. On Friday, June 13th, Bill loaded up the family car and prepared for the road trip to the National Park. He was heading out with his father, Clyde Martin, and his two older sons, nine-year-old Doug and six-year-old Dennis. Dennis actually went by Denny, that's what his family and friends called him, and he was going to be celebrating his seventh birthday in just one week. According to his dad, he was a husky, healthy boy with curly brown hair and a friendly smile. And from a young age, he was outgoing, energetic, and fearless. And he had been hiking with his family since before he could even walk. When he got a little older, he started leading the way on the trails, running up ahead of the adults. That's what I used to do too, is when I went hiking with my parents, is I would always like, be way ahead of them and be like, hey, stay where we can see you. But he was finally old enough to join the family tradition and was excited about his first camping trip. They arrived at the Cades Cove campground and Bill parked the car and they unloaded their gear. The group then hiked from Cades Cove to Russell Field and spent the night in a cabin near the Russell Field Spence Field Loop, which runs along the border of North Carolina and Tennessee. They were later joined by another family, the Martins as well, Carter Martin who was a doctor from Huntsville, Alabama, and his two sons. Some say Carter was a distant cousin of Clyde's, while others say they were unrelated and just happened to have the same last name. Kind of weird, honestly. The next morning, Saturday, June 14th, 1969, both families had breakfast and then hiked uphill to Spence Field, about 4,800 feet above Cades Cove. The Appalachian Trail runs through Spence Field right on the Tennessee-North Carolina border. And the meadow runs from east to west, and the drainage for the area goes into Tennessee and North Carolina from the north and south. It was a bright and sunny day, and other Martin relatives were gathered at the camping shelter. So just a beautiful day in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. So they all had lunch together that day, and after cleaning up, Doug and Dennis, along with the Carter's two sons, ran off into the meadow with the other kids. The adults sat down on a small hill near the Anthony Creek trailhead and they watched the kids play from a distance and just relaxed and enjoyed the view while the kids were playing. No clouds in the sky and they could see for miles. It was a beautiful day. Dennis was especially easy to spot amongst the trees and the bushes as he ran around playing because he was wearing white socks with Oxford shoes and a red t-shirt tucked into green hiking shorts. Late that afternoon, the boys were playing a game of hide and seek in an area off the Appalachian Trail. And just before 4.30, the boys huddled together, whispering and glancing towards the adults who realized that the kids were going to plan on hiding and then jumping out to scare them, you know, typical prank. And they were just kind of going along with it as the adults. Bill, Clyde and Carter laughed about their little prank and they planned on acting really scared when they did jump out. 
So Doug and the other boys hid on one side of the brush, and then Dennis was afraid that his bright red shirt would be too obvious, so he went the other way to find a hiding spot away from them. Bill watched with amusement as Dennis selected a bush on the Tennessee side of the field and ducked behind it. The bush was about 50 feet from where his father and grandfather were sitting. You know, Which they're this thinking is, this is all harmless. This is very key to this whole case. Too, it the is. The fact that his they father so was close. 50 feet away, and, and in interviews he says he was literally watching this bush like a hawk. Like mm -hmm. He literally watched him go behind it and didn't take his eyes off of the bush. So a few seconds later... All the kids jumped out, and of course, the adults played along with the prank, acted scared, but then after a couple seconds, they realized that Dennis had never jumped out. They thought maybe he was still hiding, and they didn't think anything of it at first, so they started calling out for him, but he never came out from behind the bush. And at just four feet tall and 55 pounds, he was the smallest one in the group, so the boys figured that it was just maybe taking him a little bit longer to circle around the brush. Two or three minutes later, they kept calling for Dennis, expecting him to pop out from the bush along the trail at any moment. But when he didn't answer, Clyde started calling for Dennis while Bill took off down the trail. He ran for about two miles into the woods, calling his son's name. When he was sure that Dennis couldn't have possibly gotten any further, he doubled back and they searched carefully along the trail looking for any signs that the boy had been there. At some point while he was looking, he ran into a park naturalist and his wife walking up the trail from Cade's Cove, and they hadn't seen Dennis. The adults all split up to search the field and the surrounding trails. Meanwhile, Clyde started hiking back towards Cade's Cove to report Dennis missing to the National Park Service Rangers, and he made it to the ranger station at around 8.30 that night. And that's what's always so frustrating with these cases that take place, you know, a long time ago before there were cell phones, uh, you know, maybe you they can't could get immediate have, help. Yeah, you, you can't you have to hike your way out of there to get to right. somebody who can call somebody, or... which of course you can still be hiking and not have service, but they probably could have gotten help a lot faster. I mean, this whole case probably would have shook yeah. out differently if it happened today. Absolutely. So that night there was a heavy rainstorm and the temperature dropped to about 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. Two and a half to three inches of rain fell between 9 p.m. and midnight, washing away potential evidence in any tracks that could be followed. Not to mention they're just so worried about yeah. Dennis. I mean, being out in the rain, he's so little. Yeah. It would be so terrifying. That's I mean, got to be every parent's worst nightmare. Seriously, though, like that would be my worst nightmare. Yeah. I mean, losing your child, period, is just right. got to be the most scariest thing that could possibly happen. Mm -hmm. On top of that, knowing they're out there in 50-degree weather, soaked to the bone with rain. I mean, that's, that's yeah. not a good thought either. As Bill continued to search into the night, the wind and the storm drowned out his calls. Other family members took turns circling the area, calling Dennis's name, but there was no answer. The official search for Dennis didn't begin until early the next morning. And to this day, it's the most intensive, large scale and longest search for a missing person in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park's history. It included military personnel, off-duty firefighters, highway patrol troopers, foresters, hunters, college students, 51 ranger students, 30 boy scouts, and volunteers from 57 rescue squads coming from four different states, Tennessee, North Carolina, Kentucky, and Georgia. And what a change of events. I mean, they're just out there playing. He's in a bush close to them, 50 feet from them. Like any parent could be in this situation, could have happened to anyone. And then he's just gone like that. And they're going from having this really fun, relaxing family time. That's a tradition to them. Yeah. To... A large, crisis. Yeah, yeah, crisis mode with all these people involved and they're Can't absolutely even terrified. Like, they, they must be so confused at what happened. They're like, where did he go? Right. Like He it, literally just vanished. Yeah. Crazy. I know. There was a separate search operation by military volunteers, including the National Guard and 40 to 60 Green Berets from the United States Army Special Forces. The Green Berets had actually been pulled off of a training exercise in the nearby Nantahala National Forest. Search and rescue teams arrived at the park at 5 a.m. on Father's Day, Sunday, June 15th, 1969. It took hours for them to get through the flooded trails and roads to Spence Field. They loaded into trucks and jeeps and brought them over one group at a time. There was also little communication between members of law enforcement, park officials, and volunteers. And by the early afternoon, more than 240 people were searching the park for Dennis. And by the next day, there were even more volunteers. 
There were so many volunteers who came forward so quickly that law enforcement failed to keep them organized. That's what I was going to say is when you get too many hands in the pot, I mean, you can yeah. get messy and then you, you know, who knows if everybody's on the same page and right. And you know, what's just, been searched, what's not been searched. They're just random people too. You know, it's not like they have any training, so they really don't know what they're doing and having so many people now kind of walking through a crime scene that don't know what they're doing. Obviously it's going to mess stuff up. Combined with the rain, now everyone else's scents are out there. Any evidence is going to get likely mit, like just destroyed yeah. from walking over footprints, or and it's going to make it so much more difficult for the dogs when they, you know, they that's eventually true. bring out and there's dogs. There's tons of scent everywhere, right? It's almost that's so impossible. True. Very, very true. The number of searchers out there made it impossible for detectives to follow footprints or find any other type of evidence. The shrubs in the area, rhododendron and mountain laurel grow in dense thickets made of twisted vines, making it much more difficult for searchers to go beyond the trails to look for Dennis. The area had multiple steep slopes, leading into huge ravines where Dennis could have easily fallen. The most experienced volunteers used hacksaws to get into the most isolated areas of the forest and crawled through the thick brush on their hands and knees looking for any clues. That just tells you how thick this thicket really was. A group of Green Berets ended up in such a remote area that they ran out of food rations and ended up cooking a rattlesnake. A 24-hour watch was set up at the Spence Field in case Dennis wandered back. And even though he was wearing a bright red shirt that would have stood out amongst the brush, there were plenty of areas where his body would have been completely covered. Plus, he would have been hard to spot regardless in the deepest ravines because of his size. Dennis's mother, Violet, had been informed that her son was missing when she was at church on Sunday morning. At the time, she wondered out loud if God had done this to make them appreciate things more. She believed once this lesson was learned, they would find Dennis. On June 17th, three days after Dennis disappeared, there were more heavy rains, turning the trails back into mud pits and destroying any new tracks. That day, two hikers from Townsend, Tennessee, near Knoxville, found tracks in the Eagle Creek area, about a mile from Spence Field. The tracks included a small shoe print next to a bare footprint. The hikers followed the tracks until they disappeared near a stream, and the print was near the west prong of the Pigeon River, and it matched the size and style of Oxford shoes Dennis had been wearing. Now, the whole prints thing is really confusing because it seems like they appeared after they had already searched the area multiple times. They had already yeah. kind of blocked that off, and then all of a sudden there's these footprints. It almost seemed like they were created after he had gone missing after they had already searched which makes sense there's multiple days of rain so it's likely that they were new because mm -hmm. rain from the prior day would have washed away any prints right so that's weird that mm -hmm. it's now his prints are now being found yeah days later with a bare footprint yeah which is just creepy this couple actually notified the park rangers who then went and made a cast of the shoe print and the bare footprint they thought the print may have been from a tennis shoe and not an oxford Bill examined the cast and thought the shoe print looked too large to be Dennis's. And Boy Scouts had searched that area, and they wore Oxford shoes as part of their uniform as well. So, so that maybe, could make sense. But yeah. again, bare footprint. Was there somebody with I know. walking barefoot? Who's with searching the Boy barefoot, right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's very weird. Very strange. The Green Berets had searched that area too and hadn't found anything when they did their search. And the prints were ultimately dismissed by the authorities because, I mean, mm -hmm. can't do a whole lot with You the can't print. prove that what they were yeah but i mean they could have done more i mean they would have done more nowadays with that right right but yeah they just kind of moved on nothing that was like the biggest piece of evidence and nothing was ever done with it so that's great yeah but let's take a quick ad break and then we'll jump back into the search for dennis martin so the next day volunteers reported finding a shoe and a sock that may have belonged to dennis but they weren't even documented by investigators and as rain continued throughout the week the roads flooded so park rangers brought in truckloads of gravel to try to make it easier for them to move around and kind of absorb some of that. Dwight McCarter, a 24-year-old park ranger who had grown up in the area, was an expert at tracking in the wilderness. Since he was a young boy, he had been studying the difference between human and animal tracks so he could spot even the tiniest clues left along the trails. And during the first week of the search, he had watched helplessly as precious clues of what could have happened to Dennis Martin were just destroyed in the rainstorm, destroyed by tire tracks, and destroyed by hundreds of volunteers who were trying to help, but actually making the situation worse, unfortunately. 
By June 21st, 1,400 people were out searching in the park. Many of the volunteers had never been to this park, and some didn't even know how to use a compass. Very few of them were trained trackers like Dwight. They just wanted to help. So this influx of inexperienced volunteers actually led to some serious accidents. One man fell off a bridge and broke his arm. Another man accidentally shot himself in the leg somehow. Um, <laughs> that's interesting. Probably just hiking up steep terrain. Yeah. Like, you know, so like back in the day, their that's holsters true. and stuff probably weren't as good. So they could have like leaned down on it and accidentally. Oh, it it used to happen quite a bit that people like accidentally shoot themselves in yeah. the foot. Yeah. Well, eventually they did bring dogs in, and I believe that was on day three, which is pretty late to bring dogs in. I mean, yeah, especially with this many people out there. What's the point? Hundreds of people wandering in the area, the constant rain. So, of course, they're not going to be able to pick up Dennis's scent, which side note, it's kind of interesting to note that normally the rain does help animals pick up scent better. It multiplies the scent, the each water molecule. So. They still weren't able to do it, though, because there's there was 1400 so, people right. out there. There's it's, too much scent yeah. for a dog to pick out a specific one, which now, you know, they do things a lot differently with larger search yeah. groups for that reason. Helicopters searched from the air as well. They spent nearly 200 hours total circling forests and trails, but they were often forced to land because of the heavy rain and fog, which that alone, I mean, 200 hours, that's yeah. the amount of resources and money that were put in the search is mm-hmm. huge. Yeah. I mean, to afford that. Plus, from the air being foggy and then the trees and the dense brush below, it made it impossible for them to even see the ground. So Violet, his mother, came to the park and was taken by helicopter to Spence Field to join the search for her son. And she was just totally freaked out. All of his family was. Bill had gone up in a Tennessee Highway Patrol helicopter to yell for Dennis from a bullhorn. But it's not likely his desperate calls could have even been heard from the ground. More people arrived to bring food, water, and supplies to the search parties, including volunteers from the American Red Cross. They reluctantly started making plans on how to recover Dennis's remains from the most remote areas. Because at this point, their likelihood is that he probably didn't make it in this type of conditions. And so they kind of turned from a search and rescue to recovering remains. Officers had to close down one of the roads into the main search area as curious onlookers had started driving into the park just to make matters worse. That's so annoying. God. Investigators made a public announcement that no additional volunteers should come to the area. And by June 22nd, the searchers had covered 56 square miles of the park. And that night and into the following day, there was more heavy rain and flooding. It also got less likely that Dennis would be found alive. So the number of volunteers started to drop. He would have had to have survived for eight days alone in the wilderness with no shelter, no coat, and no food. And there weren't even berries out there that he could have eaten to stay alive. On June 24th, Bill wandered the area calling for Dennis on a megaphone, and two more dog teams arrived but failed to pick up a scent. That day, a young boy wandered away from his family's fishing trip. He was dressed exactly like Dennis had been and was mistaken for the missing boy, causing a wave of hope and then bitter disappointment when the boy was identified and was obviously not Dennis. The next morning, Wednesday, June 25th, Bill and the rest of the Martin family finally went home. The National Guard and Green Beret started planning their departures as well. And over the next few days, a dead dog and a dead bobcat caused more false alarms. The following day, the search was scaled way back, and most of the volunteers had gone home, leaving only assigned investigators on the case. And there was one final search conducted on June 29th. The FBI even stepped in to help out where they could, but they found no evidence of a kidnapping and concluded that whatever happened to Dennis happened inside of the park. Because, you know, there's always a possibility maybe he was taken outside the park, something like that. But they declined to even open up their own investigation once they determined that. Over the summer, a few park rangers continued to search for Dennis, knowing by then they were looking for signs of his remains. The search was officially called off on September 11th, 1969, nearly three months after Dennis disappeared. And by that time, volunteers and law enforcement had spent a combined 13,240 hours looking for him. And the search had cost about 70,000, which in today's money, we're talking over half a million dollars. So a month after Dennis went missing, a new witness actually came forward named Harold Key. Harold was a state highway engineer from Carthage, Tennessee, and he and his family were visiting the park that Father's Day weekend. The day that Dennis went missing, their family had gone on a walk in the woods 
in the Sea Branch area of the park. They had asked the park rangers for the best hiking spot to try to catch a glimpse of a bear. Harold had noticed a white car parked along the road near Rowan's Creek. It was an older model white Chevrolet. So he walked about 500 yards into the woods and then he heard someone scream and he described it as a troubled scream, an enormous sickening scream. He thought it was coming from a higher ground towards Spence Field, but it was hard to tell. But within a few minutes, Harold's son actually saw something moving among the trees and pointed it out. His son thought it was a bear, but it was actually a large burly man darting through the forest coming from the direction of the scream. The man was disheveled and seemed to be fleeing from something. Harold also noticed a flash of something red over the man's shoulder. So he was headed down the creek towards the parking area, which was about a half a mile away. But when he noticed that there were other people nearby, he was said to have picked up his pace. And at the time, Harold had no idea that there was a young boy missing. He assumed that the man was trying not to be seen because he was a moonshiner smuggling in illegal liquor, possibly. Harold followed the man's path, though, and found a scrap of paper with a map drawn on it. When he emerged from the woods into the parking area, he noticed that the white car was missing. And of course, this is an older case, and some of the details are a little foggy. But in some accounts, Harold actually saw this man get into the white car and speed away, driving towards Cade's Cove. And all this happened in late afternoon or early evening. According to some reports, it was between 4.30 and 5.30, but other reports say it's between 6 and 7, so who really knows? The next day, Harold and his family returned home, and that's when he heard about the Dennis Martin disappearance. But he actually waited another two days before telling the police, because he wasn't sure if this nervous man could have anything to do with the missing child. But after thinking about it more, he decided to report it and called the FBI. Harold couldn't remember the exact time that he heard the scream, but investigators with the FBI believed it was too far away to be the missing boy. And they decided that there wasn't enough evidence to launch an investigation to find this man that Harold saw in the woods and didn't think it was possible for Dennis to get that far away in that time frame. Sea Branch is about five miles downhill from Dennis's last known location, and there were no direct trails between the two locations. So getting from one place to another along the trails was about seven to nine miles. Maybe Dennis could have gotten there by himself, but a person of medium build could have carried him that distance, of course. On July 3rd, Dwight McCarter led a small search and rescue group through the trails around Spence Field. As they walked along West Prong Trail and the wind was blowing, they detected an unmistakable smell of death in the air. These were experienced outdoorsmen who were convinced that it wasn't the smell of animal remains. It had to be human. So Dwight reported the smell to park officials over the radio, and they answered that that area had been thoroughly searched already, so it was probably just a dead crow. But he said he knew the smell of a dead crow, a dead bear, a dead deer, any other animal. This was different. He knew this had to be human remains. Which that's that's what they say is human remains just smells yeah. way different than anything I'm lucky I haven't smelled that yet, but I've heard it's very distinct and one of the worst things you can possibly smell. Yeah, that's why there's that saying, smell of death. Yeah, like It really does smell much different than any other type of dead creature. The direction of the wind brought the smell from Eagle Creek, the area where the hikers had found the shoe print and barefoot print near the water. Dennis's parents believe that because there is no trace of him found during the search, that he must have made it out of the park and he either got out by himself or someone took him out. At some point, a woman reported seeing a boy who looked like Dennis in Knoxville. He was riding in the back seat of a car. Investigators followed up on this lead and many other leads, but nothing led them to Dennis. The Martin family even offered a $5,000 reward for Dennis's return or information about his disappearance, which would be about thirty-seven grand today. The reward money attracted calls from amateur sleuths, astrologers and psychics claiming to know what had happened to Dennis, but it didn't result in any useful leads. Days after Dennis went missing, the National Park Service received a letter from the president of the ESP Research Associates suggesting that Dennis had been abducted. One of the most well-known psychics of the 20th century, Jean Dixon, actually worked on the case. And Jean allegedly predicted the assassination of John F. Kennedy She met with Richard Nixon in the Oval Office to discuss her predictions of terrorist attacks, and she gave advice to Nancy Reagan based on astrology, which we all know. She claimed to have a vision of Dennis Martin behind a waterfall 
on the North Carolina side of Spence Field. In the vision, he was still breathing, and she predicted that he would be found alive. She even gave specific instructions to get to that spot, tracing Dennis's steps from the day he disappeared. But when searchers went to that spot, Dennis was nowhere to be found. And that's where it pretty much goes cold. I mean, there's really no other leads from that point on. Unfortunately, and they didn't follow some of the potential leads that we could have had. So Right, right. They didn't take it seriously, at least. So I mean, I think it's also just the time, too. Things were just so different. You know, with missing investigations children. were just done way different back totally. then. Totally. And they didn't have the technology that we because like think about it now, we have like thermal uh cameras and things like that. We can yeah. get heat signatures from way down below from mm-hmm. helicopters. So you could see if there was humans running. But below. that's not to say people can't go missing no, in these parks. It true, happens it still happens. <laughs> all the time. Like freakish Honestly crazy. numbers. Which we'll get into yeah. all of that here when we come back from our last break. So obviously there are endless theories of what could have happened to Dennis. Everything from being abducted by a Sasquatch to Dennis just died in the wilderness. Of natural. Yeah. So let's go over that part first. The idea that he just died in the wilderness. Many people think the most likely scenario is that Dennis wandered off and couldn't find his way back. And then he died out in the wilderness, which I have trouble believing that, right? Like he, his parents were 50 feet away from him. How far could he have gotten in that short amount of time? And why would he have just wandered away when they're trying to jump out and do this little prank? You know, he was so into it. It's just weird that you wouldn't see him walking away in his bright red shirt. Or heard him walking away or anything like that. And how far could he have gotten? I mean, they started looking for him immediately. Right. Even if searchers had been near him, missing kids have been known to hide from search parties. That does happen, especially when they're disoriented or scared. I could see a lot of kids being like, if I get found, then I'll be in trouble. Like, that's true. Who knows? Like, maybe police will like hurt me or like take mm-hmm. me or do something. Like, I, I could see that as a kid. That would yeah. be really scary when there's a search party after you. And like, yeah. what would the consequences be if they found me? That's true. Or maybe he just didn't, I mean, could have been disoriented enough to not right. realize that they were trying to help him and thought they were, you know, after him. Cert- after him exactly. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of areas in the rough mountain terrain where he may have fallen out of sight or been able to hide. The rising creeks and howling winds were loud enough to drown out any sounds of Dennis calling for help and also for, you know, his parents calling out to him. It's possible he may not have heard it. Plus, the temperatures that night had dropped to about 50 degrees. And in most cases of hypothermia, it occurs in temperatures of 30 to 50 degrees. Plus, hypothermia is more likely in wet, windy weather conditions. Plus, he's a child. Without medical treatment, hypothermia, of course, causes heart and respiratory system failure and then death. And it's going to set in quicker for children than adults. In the early 1970s, a group of men were walking through Big Hollow, which is a valley south of the Tremont region in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And they found skeletal remains of a young child, including a skull near an uprooted tree. The bones had been scattered around by animals. The men were actually there to illegally harvest ginseng roots, and they didn't want to get in trouble, so they decided not to tell anyone about the bones in the forest. In 1985, one of the men finally broke. He confided in Dwight McCarter, who actually happened to be his personal friend, that they had found the bones. So Dwight organized a group of 30 rescue squad volunteers from Swain County, North Carolina, to search the area where the skeletal remains had been found. This was a promising lead because the bones were scattered about three to 3.5 miles from Dennis's last known location. And they were in the same direction as the Oxford shoe print found near Pigeon River. But unfortunately, too much time had passed. There were no trace of bones anywhere in the area. Which this is a lesson for all of us. If you ever come across human remains while you're out and about, always, always report it to the authorities mm-hmm. because you just never know. I mean, this could be right. the the remains of a case that's been cold for years and years and years like this one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you don't do it, here's what happens is the bones disappear. They break down even more. They get carried away. I mean, who knows? And then whoever's remains that was was just never, yeah, never found. And I mean, I think most people nowadays would report human remains. Which, yeah, and like in his case, he was illegally farming. But I'm like, I'm like, come on, like how, well, how much trouble are you going to get in for doing that in the forest? Like, can't be that. I don't know. How strict were the rules on ginseng back then? I mean, damn, <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. I, I get like cutting down like the state flower or something and like, mm. but grabbing some just like herbs from the ginseng ground. Like, roots. Yeah. 
Well, maybe it was, I don't know. I actually don't know the history of ginseng. Can you look it up, Janelle? I'm actually kind of curious. Let's see if we can find some information on that real fast. According to the internet, it says that you must obtain a permit to collect wild ginseng. Especially really? during harvest season. Oh, so even Wild today. ginseng populations have declined so rapidly in the eastern United States that most national forests have banned it. The oh, harvest it. that's why. Okay. I did not know that. So I have no like, idea. It's a protected plant then. It's like... Hmm. Interesting. So Dwight wrote a book about stories of lost campers and hikers, and he called it Lost, a ranger's journal of search and rescue. And it was published in 1998. And Dennis's story in particular had a very lasting effect on him because of his young age and all the mysterious circumstances of the day. And according to his firsthand experience and research for the book, Dwight does not think that the initial search was thorough enough. And I think we can all agree. He believes more extensive searches should have occurred, especially around Sea Branch, where Harold Key had heard someone screaming and saw that man running, and also near the Pigeon River, where volunteers found that Oxford shoe print. Like we said earlier, the shoe print was dismissed as belonging to the Boy Scouts who searched the area. But that is really flawed because none of the Boy Scouts had been barefoot and there was barefoot prints as well. Plus, there was only just one set of prints. If it was a group of Boy Scouts, there would have been many more. The path around the stream would have looked like a trail in the dark. And Dennis may have passed through after the Green Berets cleared the area. Plus, it's also possible that someone else came across Dennis's remains without realizing what they were. Several factors would have contributed to the deterioration of the remains, including the weight and pH levels of the soil, the groundwater, and the presence of bacteria and fungi. Plus, a child's remains will decompose faster than adults and are easily more scattered by animals. So even if a fragment of remains were found, they likely didn't look like what people would imagine human remains to be. Yeah, I think this is, I mean, it's clear why it's the most probable theory is that he got lost and died due to the elements getting soaked and it being cold and died yeah. from hypothermia most likely somewhere. And then his body was found by a wild animal in which the wild animal then destroyed his body and scattered his remains. That seems like the most yeah, likely It really does. Theory. But for some reason, it just doesn't sit right to me. There's something weird about it I though know. with the barefoot prints. Yeah. That to me, I keep going back to The man to, screaming yeah. that he looked all rugged and fleeing from something. Yeah. I mean- Right. Yeah, it could be because like there's a lot of interesting people who live out in oh, the middle of nowhere. That's so true. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it happened a while later, too. Yeah. It's also possible that Dennis could have been poisoned. The shrubs rhododendron and the mountain laurel are very common through the Great Smoky Mountains. And both are highly toxic to humans and animals when eaten. If ingested, rhododendron poisoning may cause abdominal pain, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, excessive salivation, watery eyes, runny nose, weakness, loss of energy, depression, difficulty breathing, limb paralysis, coma, and cardiac failure. And of course, it can also cause death. And mountain laurel poisoning may cause similar symptoms along with a weak heart rate, sweating, recumbency, meaning the person cannot get up from a lying down position. And these symptoms can last for two days or more after ingestion. If Dennis was lost and hungry, it's possible he started just eating the plants around him out of desperation and accidentally poisoned himself. Even if searches were near him, he may not have been conscious. He could have been paralyzed or just too weak to call out for help. If he ate enough of these plants, that could have been what killed him as well. Possible, but yeah. I don't know if as a child, if you would go right to eating just random stuff, you know? Maybe he was lost for a bit then he was like starving he got scared he was gonna starve so he was like eating he's like oh i'll eat some plants right. out of desperation and ate the wrong plants i think if that happened there would have been a greater chance of them finding, finding his remains yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah within that time period like yeah if he had been paralyzed i mean he couldn't have gotten that far and i mean they searched 56 square miles so mm -hmm. likely you would they would have found his remains at some point another theory though is that perhaps it was an animal attack right once Dennis wandered away, maybe he was attacked by a hungry bear. And because of the drought the previous year, the usual food source for bears, fallen acorns, was scarce. And just two weeks before Dennis went missing, park rangers caught a bony, scrawny bear in a wild boar trap. And the bear had been lured by corn in the trap, something bears don't usually eat. So that's kind of how they figure out, okay, there's a lack of food for them. Feral pigs or bobcats in the area were also capable of attacking a small child lost in the woods. 
If Dennis was attacked by a bear, a feral pig, or a bobcat, his body may have been dragged to a remote area of the park that no one could get to. The park is also home to two species of venomous snakes, the northern copperhead and the timber rattlesnake. Of the 7,000 to 8,000 people bitten by venomous snakes in the United States each year, about five people die. Most of the deaths are from rattlesnake bites, which are four times more deadly than copperhead bites. But the copperhead is responsible for more snake bites per year than any other venomous snake. Without medical treatment, a bite from either a venomous snake species or just being mauled by a bear would have obviously led to his death. But again, if you're mauled by a bear, likely there's going to be some type of evidence of that. There's going to be blood. There's going to be something obviously a little bit different with a rattlesnake. But then again, you'd most likely still yes. find something if that were the case. If it were a snake, there would be greater chance of finding him than if it right. were a bear. Or, yeah, or even a bear. Like even if the bear drags mm-hmm. him, there's going to be track. Like there's going to be some sign of Possibly. him being dragged away by some sort of creature. Right. Which is interesting because I, I Googled this before recording about you know, animal attacks in the Great Smoky Mountains. And just like last year, somebody was mauled and eaten by a bear in the Uh Great Smoky Mountains that they ended up catching and euthanizing. But it does happen. But then again, they found remains. They find the remains of what the bear, the bear doesn't eat everything most of the time. So there'll be something left. Why do they clothing or something? They euthanize the bear. Yeah, they go being a bear in the wilderness. Yeah. If a bear eats a human, they have to put it down because you can't have it because they eat that human or human remains and then they want more of it because they realize oh that was good that filled my belly i'm gonna go start hunting them yeah what the hell i was always told that wildlife don't like us and they kill us like on accident that's what i thought too and they're they're, like oh gross no if they're hungry enough they'll eat they'll eat a human if there's scarcity yeah huh if there's not enough food for them they i mean think about it if you're an animal and that just seems so wrong to euthanize item uh, i mean animals in their natural habitat doing what they're doing when humans are in their space right, but there's I don't know. tourists coming to these national know, parks and they can't have people getting eaten know, by it's animals controversial but it just no seems, i, just I agree wrong. with you i just it's just the way it is it's like it's the same yeah. thing with mo- like even with sharks and mm-hmm. stuff they try to go after the animal that ate the because per- it becomes a danger because they're they eat it once they probably will do it again because it's they realize oh it's good wow that's really sad Uh, But also there is the possibility that Dennis could have been kidnapped. I mean, think about it. That could have explained why they didn't hear him leaving the area. Think of how scary that is. What if he was crouching behind the bush and someone came up behind him, covered his mouth and slowly chloroformed him him and or chloroformed him. Yeah. Yeah. So pick him up and run him out. They could have just been watching him the whole time watching their group kind of stalking them and waiting to take a kid that always that always scares me when i think about campgrounds i know who is who are you camping with you never know who's around you what's their history you know you could be camping with a serial killer in the same campground you have no idea i know that's a really scary thought you know what what better place than to try to abduct your next victim than in the middle of a forest yeah and it, it is possible that dennis did you know wander away and then someone just had the opportunity and took him as he was wandering around alone. Plus, there's a small chance that his abductor kept him alive. His He may have been raised as the abductor's child and then possibly sold to an adoptive family. It happens. It does. And it seems like kind of a crazy theory, but it's totally possible. A head injury or the trauma of the whole ordeal could have affected Dennis's memory of his first family. In the late 1990s or early 2000s, a man contacted park officials about the possibility that he was the real Dennis Martin. Pretty interesting. This man compared his life to what park officials already knew about the case, but it's weird because there's not a lot of information out there about this, and they never came to a definitive conclusion. Right. Well, that person never came forward and proved that they right. were that person. You know, people do do that sometimes. Right? Oh, like, all the time. Missing, I'm that missing person. And, yeah. You know, and it ends up... Like, okay, come take a DNA test or let's, you know, come forward and they don't actually come. It's so weird. Like the psychology behind that, why people do that. People will pretend that they were uh, a killer. Right. They will just pretend they murdered someone. They'll just take the rap for it. Like, oh, that was me. Hmm. Meanwhile, they had nothing to do with it. And then they prove they didn't. It's so strange. Which There's some strange people out there, man. People are desperate for attention, though. Yes. So. Well, speaking of murder, I mean, it's possible that he's just stumbled into somebody that was, like I said, a serial killer or somebody out there that took advantage of the opportunity of a young boy that's by himself or was doing something illegal and Dennis saw it yeah. and they wanted to True. You know, Maybe kill him as a witness to a crime. Absolutely. 
maybe maybe you saw something you shouldn't or maybe the person was you know somebody who takes advantage of children and yeah. they just took took advantage of him and then dumped his body somewhere in the remote area where no park. one find him yeah now this theory is very very interesting to me because i think it holds holds a lot of of credibility so there's a theory that the smoky mountains is home to groups of feral humans called mm. wild men and they've lived in the wilderness for so many generations that they've evolved to be more like animals than people so almost like almost like a sasquatch situation but but more like human. We need to do a whole episode on feral humans. Let well, us I mean, know by giving this episode yeah, a thumbs up if you know. want to see it because it's pretty interesting and I don't think a lot of people right. are aware of how common it is. So according to theory, wild men have their own language and such a strong stench that they can be smelled before they're even seen, which mm-hmm. you can imagine like if Just humans like live. Massive BO. Yeah. Oh, it's got to be so gross. Stinking. They live high up in the mountains and come down at night to steal livestock for food. They're also cannibals and won't hesitate to kidnap a child from the campgrounds in the park to eat them. They're cannibals. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that, but that makes sense. That's scary. Yeah, I know, right? Damn. (laughs) That's why I said when you're camping, you don't know who's around. FBI investigators allegedly know about the wild men and have kept evidence secret from the public. Wild men may also be descendants of indigenous people who escaped before the Trail of Tears in the 1800s. Again, this is all pure mm-hmm. speculation. Mm-hmm. These people have been cut off from modern society for generations and just been evolving in the woods with all nature and animals. According to witnesses, they may speak English in addition to their own language, or they might not speak at all. One man claimed that in the wake of Dennis Martin's disappearance, the FBI paid his uncles to hunt the wild men and kill them. Some theorize that the Green Berets were actually brought in for the search to wipe out the wild men population and not to search for Dennis at all. A few of the Green Berets may have had handguns, but not nearly enough weapons and ammunition to wipe out a whole population of feral humans. And this has been explained by an alleged secret weapon drop from a helicopter during the search. Even if there's not a group of organized wild men, people speculated that hermits or nomads living in the mountains could have found Dennis. Which... I think that is one of the biggest possibilities in addition to wild men is the fact that there is nomads out there. And I know for a fact, because again, there's that national geographic show called the boonies. And there is a man that literally lives in a cave system in the great smoky mountains. And he lives a hundred percent off the land pretty much. And so there's probably more people like him that are out there. And, you know, you always got to wonder why somebody would choose that life and you know what they might be capable of. And you never know. You never know. Maybe they found him and were trying to help him and just like brought him in and then just decided to have him stay with him and keep him company. I mean, it could be something as innocent as that to, you know, the whole cannibal situation. You never know. But let's talk about Missing 401, the Missing 401 project, actually, and David Politis, because this is really his realm of, of expertise. And he actually wrote about this case extensively in one of his missing 411 books actually does he still live in colorado he does not um oh, i reached out to it. him he yeah he used to live here in colorado and we we missed him before he moved to montana oh. um, but he did say that we might be able to get him in person but at the very least he said he's always be happy to he responded hop to on us? a zoom yeah i uh, talked to him really yeah yeah yeah, yeah he responded to me oh stuff. okay yeah. now i remember that was like a year ago. yeah this right? was a little while ago but yeah he said he would do like a like a remote skype type thing david please that would be so cool i know so many of our fans would love to hear from david politis and he's got a lot of interesting he's a, he's a really interesting guy i mean yeah he's got a ton of experience he was in law enforcement for 20 years he worked on the swat team in the street crimes unit in san jose california uh, but then he ended up leaving the police force and after that he became fascinated by this phenomenon that he calls missing 411 and all the people missing in national parks and forests in North America, as well as the mystery of Bigfoot. So all of his work led him to create the Missing 411 Project. And while doing research in the national park, he met an off-duty park ranger who told him about the mysterious cases of people who disappeared in the park. And according to David, the ranger asked him to look into these cases. And during his research, he discovered that the searches for missing people weren't always as thorough as people believe they were. Mistakes and negligence made by park officials and law enforcement were very common. 
And David found that hundreds of missing people were ultimately found in areas that were already searched. He also discovered that the United States National Park Service has no system for tracking people who go missing in parks and no cross-reference system with criminal databases. Isn't that unbelievable? They don't even have a number of how many people. They don't even know. It's all estimated. That's so fucking nuts. So he widened his investigation to include disappearances from around the world and created a database of tens of thousands of cases. He then systematically eliminated cases that had an obvious answer. Of those left, he identified patterns, similarities, and correlations between them to create a profiling system to try to uncover what was causing these disappearances, which this is a similar profiling system used by the FBI to track down serial killers. He hasn't been able to link these cases to a common cause, but he believes he's getting closer. He definitely has some theories. David published his findings in the Missing 411 series, and he interviewed Bill Martin and park ranger Dwight McCarter as part of his research into Dennis's disappearance. He also obtained documents from the National Park Service about the case through FOIA requests. He identified several key identifiers to link Dennis's case to others who went missing in national parks, including Dennis disappeared just minutes after being seen by family members, heavy rains washed away potential evidence, and no trace of him was ever found. David has also pointed out that the National Park Service and the FBI have refused to consider abduction as a possible explanation. Hmm. Plus and you the, wonder why. Yeah, I know. It's like, hmm, it's kind of questionable. And the FBI has not released the case files. According to Dwight, it's possible that Dennis was abducted by people living off the grid in the mountains. He told David that he believed wild men had been responsible for at least one other incident where a park ranger was violently attacked. Through his research, David found that no other missing person case in a national park resulted in anywhere near the immediate search effort of Dennis's disappearance. He believes the law enforcement and military response, especially from the U.S. Special Forces, which is very, very weird that they got involved into this. Yeah. Which, on the flip side, I think you would say because the area, the train, they're familiar with it, they trained nearby that they brought them in because of that. But it also points to the possibility that they knew something more sinister was going on than a boy who wandered away from his camp. The National Park Service had met with a special agent from the FBI on June 24, 1969 to discuss Dennis's case. But David couldn't find who had notified the FBI in any of the documents he reviewed. There was also no mention of what was discussed during the meeting. This meeting was the beginning of the end of the search efforts. The FBI notified the Martin family that without evidence of a kidnapping, they couldn't open an investigation. Harold Key had offered to come to the park and meet with investigators, but instead he met with an FBI agent and was debriefed off-site. He was never interviewed by park officials and nothing about him was recorded in their documents. At some point, Bill Martin met with Harold to hear the story for himself. Bill believed the FBI and park officials were misleading the public about what Harold saw and were trying to keep the truth from the Martin family. All that was initially reported by the media was that the Kay family had seen a bear and there was no mention of a man or the scream. Dwight McCarter pointed out that wild men who had lived in the mountains over the years often wore bear skins and may initially look like a bear. When David interviewed Bill, he said that he had hiked from Spence Field to the area where Harold saw the man in the woods. Bill went with a National Park Service prevention officer, and the two men completed the hike in 90 minutes, proving that the sighting could have been connected to Dennis, because, I mean, it's not that far. Dwight had also done this hike at the time to prove this lead was worth looking into, but Harold's account was ultimately dismissed by the FBI. Bill told David that the head of the Park Service was nothing more than a figurehead and that someone else was calling the shots during the search. He also revealed that the lead FBI agent on the case, Jim Reich, had died by apparent suicide. David concluded that the most significant factor in Dennis's case is that the most extensive search in the park's history failed to find a single verifiable clue of what happened to Dennis Martin. And I, th- I absolutely agree with mm-hmm. him that I this is too. the most significant factor. I mean, the amount of resources brought in and absolutely nothing mm-hmm. was found officially, right? There was a few things that it's truly unbelievable. they kind of threw out, but nothing. So mistakes made early on in this case led to changes in how searches for missing people are conducted and spawned worldwide changes to the science of search management. Law enforcement learned that more people in the beginning isn't necessarily a good thing, especially if a lot of those people aren't trained to look for tracks and preserve potential evidence. 
Now, a group of like 100 volunteers is considered a large search party and bringing in experienced tracking experts early on is absolutely crucial. They also learn the importance of organizing search efforts within the first few crucial hours, as well as the most effective ways to organize large search efforts. The National Park Service completely overhauled training and protocols in rescue operations, and these lessons were incorporated into methods used by the National Association for Search and Rescue, which was formed in 1972. Search and rescue groups in the Australian outback, the Amazon rainforest, and other remote areas around the world know the name Dennis Martin and use these lessons learned in today's case to save other lives. Today, Spence Field has a lot more trees than open land, and the ground is covered in decades of natural debris. It looks totally different than it did in the 1960s, and it's nearly impossible to find those areas where Dennis was last seen. Since the search for Dennis was officially called off, no one in the Martin family ever talked publicly about what happened. Bill Martin actually believes that Dennis had been taken by that disheveled man seen in the park by Harold Key. But he died on October 31st, 2014 at the age of 78, never learning what happened to his son. Oh, man. It's got to be the biggest Can you imagine? I really can't. Ha- not having answers. Is, just ugh. dying, not knowing my son just, who knows? I mean, I guess he, in his mind, he thinks whoever this man was took his son. But just to think like, What could knows? have happened yeah, after that? What happened after that? Yeah. Is imagine he still the out amount there? of is scenarios that would go through your head, picturing your kid in all these different circumstances. It's, it's just horrible. So if he were still alive today, Dennis would be 59 years old. He had wavy brown hair, dark brown eyes, and thick eyelashes. Here are some age progression photos to show what he could have looked like today. Of course, if anyone happens to have information about this case, you are asked to contact the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation at 615-744-4000. But that is all we have on this case. I want to talk a little bit more, though, about the idea of this man, because it's yeah. interesting to me that Harold's son thought it was a bear. And, you know, me, I'm always like very skeptical about Bigfoot and Sasquatches. But like it is kind of weird. Right. This guy was described as looking all disheveled and the kid thought it was a bear. So there's a, I mean, there's a lot yeah, of if people it wasn't out a wild there. Man, maybe it was a Sasquatch, a Sasquatch which yeah. obviously that's my least believed theory yeah. here. I just want to throw it out there because it is kind of interesting. And I know many people believe in a lot of Sasquatch sightings in this area. Yeah. too. But the idea of a feral man taking him, I mean, to me personally, and obviously no one knows, but if it, it just feels like it was something more nefarious that he didn't just wander off because no, there, I think there's too much found something. Totally. 1400 people yeah. covering the areas where he was last seen. Like how miles. well could he have hidden, you know? And no way. No way. There's not going to be anything. I kind of think someone took him right from that hiding spot yeah. like was watching their family yeah saw him hiding kind of far away 50 feet from everybody else chloroformed him or put his hand around his mouth and like dragged him off into the woods yeah it wouldn't be that hard and it does happen it it's does really scary i mean there's there's a another similar this kind of reminds me of dior's case uh what's his last name dior coombs i think so yeah it sounds right yeah yeah which i believe we touched on that case i think we did yeah in our missing 411 episode quite a while back, but it was, it was pretty similar the way he just disappeared from yeah. and this is their just area. Two examples from mm-hmm. thousands of, of missing persons cases that are un unsolved mm-hmm. in national parks and forests. Yeah. If there are any other cases that take place in national parks and forests, please let us know in the comments if you want to see them. We also have a request form. If you didn't know that can be found in our description box if you want to see us talk about a certain case or topic. Yeah, I'd love to dive into this whole thing more. Because there's just like, there's so many weird things. I mean, there's c- countless stories of hunters who are armed yeah. that just go missing without a trace. And there's absolutely no evidence. But that's what makes these cases so frustrating. Because you can all you can really do is go, it could have been this. It right. could have been this. It could have been this. But and you like, have to remember, it's like, yeah, it's easy to get turned around in the forest and get lost and then, you know, just disappear. It is. These I are guess, vast yeah. areas of forest and I just land, don't know why so. Dennis would have walked away. No, that's what that doesn't make moment. sense. I, I feel like he would have been, he, he seemed like at least experienced enough with hiking and being out with his family and stuff that he wouldn't just like run off. It didn't seem yeah. like he was the type of kid that would just like run off and, and, and how leave far could everybody. he have gotten? Yeah, exactly. They went and looked all over for him. I don't know. That's, that's what <laughs> gets me is bender. the amount of people that, that search the area with yeah. virtually no evidence. And then the, the track with the bare footprint, that's what I keep coming mm-hmm. back to is like the bare footprint 
suggests whatever whoever this man was was barefoot which then makes you think was this was this a human was this a well in that case what was this well like if it was a sasquatch wouldn't it be a huge ass footprint look probably different like people would have yeah it would have been it would have looked clearly not yeah it would have looked different from a human foot to me i'm kind of thinking the feral human idea is most likely yeah there's also theories of that there's like secret government agents out there that are like abducting especially children for top secret experiments and things oh, yeah. like that there's and a lot of theories out there about secret bases and, and government government testing. land that yeah. there's entrances to underground bases in these parks this and is why i want to talk to david politis well the thing with david is he doesn't he won't tell you exactly what he thinks like he's very like he keeps it very like you know could be this could be that but he's not like going to tell you exactly what he thinks because he's afraid of something happening well, i don't know i don't know maybe don't well know. that tells you all you need to know right there there's a reason he's not going to say exactly what say it is things. yeah, yeah. Well, pretty interesting one. We definitely want to hear your most likely guess at what happened to Dennis Martin below. But that's going to wrap it up for us today. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode of the Mile Higher podcast. If you did, we really appreciate it. If you subscribe, hit the like button if you're watching on YouTube or if you just are an audio listener, always go and check out the YouTube video because then you can really put the pieces together, see the images and faces that we're talking about. And I think it will help just explain the story a little bit more. But... With that being said, that wraps it up for today. We'll see you guys next week. But until then, keep on taking your mind a mile higher.